Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. In today's episode, we're taking a closer look at an unusual post-COVID symptom, parosmia, the misperception of odour. Imagine if your coffee started smelling like sewage, or your favourite shampoo seemed to be flavoured with sick, or the hospital ward you work on suddenly smells nice. We'll be hearing firsthand what it's like to have it, and covering everything you need to know for a consultation with somebody with parosmia, from Professor Claire Hopkins, the leading expert on COVID smell disturbances, and co-author of a recent BMJ practice pointer on parosmia. I'm Tom Nolan, GP and clinical editor for the BMJ, uh, and I'm joined as ever by uh, Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor, GP, and clinical editor for the BMJ. Hi, and uh, and parosmia is something you've sort of interested, seen much of, or heard much about recently. Uh, actually, not yet. So yeah. we're kind of recovering from an Omicron wave here in New Zealand. Didn't have too big a delta wave, um, very little alpha, very few alpha cases, I should say. Um, but I, ha- I have seen a lot of post-COVID, and of course now we have a lot of people recovering from COVID, so I fully anticipate starting to see this. I'm grateful mm-hmm. we're covering this. Yeah, of course in New Zealand, th- things have <laughs> had much, much less um, sort of primary infection, haven't you? So, Sorry. Um, and, Nav- and Navjoit as well. Hi, Navjoit. Hello, um, I'm Navjoit Lada. I'm a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Okay, and uh, again, uh, so in- interested in, in parosmia? Know much about it? Yeah, no, definitely interested and don't know a huge amount about it. I haven't really encountered it personally or professionally yet, but read a lot about it. And it sounds like a really distressing mm. um, symptom. Yes, absolutely. And and um, the, I'll let you off because the, the BMJ article was only published yesterday. So um, if you haven't read it, that's okay. <laughs> uh, but it is a really interesting. That will be some required follow-up mm-hmm. reading for sure. Definitely. I think it will be part of the, the quiz at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's not like you to give us clues for the quiz. I know. I know. Would you like to make it as difficult? As I was possible? just remembering plan- how horrendously I did on the last one and all the just the pediatric Bristol chart descriptions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I do remember. <laughs> That's why I'm I'm giving giving a few heads up in advance and already planning it in in my spare time. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, let's let's have a think about parosmia. So we. we um, We've spoken to somebody who's been affected by it, a, med- a medical student to, um, who has, has had parosmia. And, and that's the plan first, is to hear from her. And then, and then we're going to talk to um, Professor Hopkins, who uh, has written this, co- or co-authored this article. Um, should we get, so go straight into it? And then we can, we can you know, have a chat after the uh, interview with, with the person who's been suffering from it. Sounds good. It's an interesting one, I think, because it's not something you learn much about, I think, at med school or we come across very often. And um, I, I think I became aware of it through sort of social media and some news articles about it, um, you know, following COVID. Uh, um, lots of people, yeah, describing, you know, or sh- videoing themselves smelling certain things and then describing the, the sort of dis- usually disgusting, unpleasant um, smell that, that they actually perceive. Um and yeah, and and that ha- having knock-on effects in terms of what you maybe feel your appetite or what you might want to eat and drink, so intimacy and, and things. Mm. So um, it does sound like one of those things where initially you might think, oh, that's 
almost amusing. I think there's a lot of that, that kind of like undertones to some of the reporting on it, but um, probably it's quite quite a horrible thing to experience if, you, if you're suffering from it. You know, anytime I hear about sensory disturbances, it always makes me reflect on how we've come to define this idea of normal, right? Like, like I think this paper is blue and I think that chair over there is green because those are the colors that I've been taught to call those names. But what if my version of that is like red and purple as far as you know them? And it just makes me wonder, like, what if, what if the way that we, you know, with parosmia, you know, what if the way that people are now experiencing these smells is like the way that they've always been experienced to other people? It's like the coriander haters who think that coriander tastes horrible. So you're blowing my mind here, Jenny. <laughs> but yeah. I'm sorry. No, not, I know what you mean. Not to be, not to try to go into a metaverse here, but it just does make me like, just makes me always mm. wonder, you know, are we, we set our range of normal in terms of our sensory yeah. inputs based on experience yeah. and what people tell us and, and how other people describe things to try to get yeah. us to understand them. And what if, what if we're all altered already? <laughs> Yeah. And it's interesting that we, I guess, to some extent, we think about certain senses more because we more commonly encounter variation, you know, think, hearing and sight, particularly, you know, that they're two good examples where in med- medicine and in life, you encounter a big range of um, experiences um, of people who have various, you know, abilities there. But for sm- smell is a bit more unusual. And I think definitely with COVID, uh, sorry, I mean, smell is a bit more unusual in that we encounter it in medicine or think mm-hmm. about it that much. Um, and definitely that that's one of the things I found interesting about COVID is it's really highlighted, you know, I was thinking in my training, how much focus was there on the olfactory mm-hmm. nerve? It was just like, oh, well, just cursory sort of mention of Uh it there's not really you know we never really discussed the things that could go wrong with it and so when you know there were those first reports of anosmia it was a bit like oh you know didn't really know sort of you know I think a lot of patients developed their own ways of kind of you know Mm. um, sensory training again you know you'd hear about people smelling coffee beans every morning to try and reawaken their senses and that sort of thing and I think similarly with parosmia it sounds like there's a lot of sort of patient community and support that's um, kind of coalesced to try and get through. Yeah, what I said before can be quite a distressing um, symptom. Mm. And the other thing that I was just, what you said, Jenny, just made me think about was, um, (laughs) sorry, this is like, sounds like I'm just trying to work in the fact that I've been on holiday recently. (laughs) But when I was on holiday recently, we did um, a wine tasting. And um, the sommelier was kind of saying, you know, what you know smell this wine and what what does it remind you of and just the range of answers um that everyone was giving you know all within a kind of reasonable they're all right in um air quotes but um everyone has a different kind of yeah like sensory kind of experience of those so you're right what is that what is the normal range anyway i wonder how many of those people had parosmia Mm. Okay, so we're sort of speculating, I guess, or guessing what, what it must be like to, to have this, this, this symptom. Um, uh, but we've actually got somebody who, who has parosmia who we've uh, interviewed. And uh, let's go and, go and hear from her now. This is uh, Emily Woodruff, who's a medical student in London.
Um, so I'm Emily Wajoof and I'm a third year medical student at Barts in the London. Hi, thank you, Emily, for, for, for talking to me today and to tell to tell me all about your experience with parosmia. What what happened to you then? Where did it all start? So for me, it started in June 2020 when um, I was positive with um, COVID-19. Not that I've ever swallowed bleach, but I assumed it would be that same sort of like chemically taste. Um, it was really strong and particularly coffee, onions, garlic, red peppers, um, chocolate. Um, it was like, it was sort of everything really. Uh, so now I'm back to like almost everything tasting how it used to. But I just don't really trust my taste and also don't really trust my sense of smell. My sense of smell is like taking a lot longer to come back. And actually like sort of bad smells. I can't really smell as badly as I used to, um, which has been a bit of a benefit for being on placement for me. So, so going back to when it started, so initially it was as a lack of or reduced smell, but when did you, was it like a few weeks or months after that, that you started to notice this kind of alter, things didn't smell this, yeah. or smell bad, nice things smelled bad, is that, is that, yeah. is that it? <laughs> yeah, so like, um, I would say two weeks, um, so I, was tested positive on like May bank holiday, something like, I think it was the 27th of May 2020. And I definitely remember like on the 15th of June, so like almost a little bit more than two weeks later, it having like the really strong tastes um, of chemical. Um, yeah, before then, I'd sort of noticed things like I'd have like a scented candle in the bath and not really be able to smell that as much and just assumed it was the candle that's right um, so taking the candle, candle back. not really yeah. like smelly what about on your placement then when you were because you were a med, med student in, in placements you were still on the wards where you did did you what other examples do you have so of i was actually how this affected you and actually it's kind of helped a little bit like i went to a nephrectomy and um it's unfortunately this very um uh, infected ki kidney and when it was opened up everybody else took like a step backwards because it smelled so bad and actually I couldn't smell it and so I then um, like did the sort of um, took the samples and sort of um, sort of dissected it to find the stones and things like that in the kidney because for me I couldn't I couldn't smell <laughs> this kidney um, Everybody else, yeah, left me to it. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, I'm trying to, I, yeah, I'm trying to think me. what pleasant smells there are in a hospital. I can't think of any. So uh, maybe possibly some <laughs> products. But yeah, I guess on, on, on the ward side, it, it, it's not such a bad thing to smell less or um, and you're, yeah. not, you're not having that parosmia of, of um, something that you expect to smell or taste nice, uh, tasting bad. Yeah. Um, but did, did you did you find that you were not a lot of people I, I believe maybe eat less or find lose appetites or um, you know, did it affect what you would eat and drink or do in in, in other ways? Yeah, it's definitely definitely like when it first happened, I was just um, eating a lot of the time. I was just eating pasta with cheese, and that was kind of all I like could really. Um, eat until I sort of like introduce stuff or 
um had to be like quite careful about if it said if something said onion powder or garlic powder or something um so a lot of things I was just eating anyway um with the hope that it like all the tastes would come back and but and they did eventually um but yeah at the time it was quite unpleasant and are, yeah and are you are you better now or can are you do you feel like things things are better now or or, or still some some things that don't don't think, quite smell right i'd say like some things still like the majority of like about 99% of everything's come back but um so like perfume doesn't necessarily smell like how it used to smell um, but generally everything's like come back and it sort of took about 10 months for me to like it was from about June to March sort of April time that everything sort of came out to pretty much the same as it used to be. So it's interesting to hear that that experience, wasn't it? And I feel a bit like Emily was um, bravely sort of downplaying some of those symptoms because she did have this for a long time. And you know, just being able to eat pasta and cheese doesn't sound very very nice, does it? That that suggests that it was pretty bad. No, I can't. I can't actually imagine that. Like ten months of not being able to eat core ingredients in so many meals, like most restaurant meals, a lot of the home-cooked meals you would consider coffee. I mean, that would be, that's cruel and unusual punishment, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. And and, and then I guess the other thing that makes me think is that, I have to admit, I haven't, I did, I've seen lots of people with anosmia and, and, and you know, coming in with, um, often it's an aside, you know, I've got long COVID and I still can't smell properly or, or maybe some altered smell. But um, I suspect there's an awful lot of people like Emily who just, kind of get on with this despite the impact it's having kind of probably knowing that there may not be be too many options for for GPs or for specialist care but yeah well and perhaps also knowing that the yeah the GPs may not have many many answers or much information about mm. you know how long will this last and um, what are some of the things that you mm. can do to to help because it's also so new in the context of COVID and the kind of clinical course I guess yeah yeah so if somebody does come in with that as a presenting complaint I can imagine it's it's um rather than being a trivial matter this is a really serious problem that they're, they're yeah struggling with. not at all to minimize how terrible those symptoms would be and I do think that would be extremely hard to have parasmia but I also really appreciated what Emily said about in some ways being lucky to be spared the ability to smell some things in a hospital environment. And I certainly would have wished for that superpower during certain points of my training. Um, But it's interesting because, yeah, kind of what you were saying earlier, Navjoy, in some ways we don't think a lot about how much olfactory information we might also include when we are thinking about a patient or a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a definitely a part of the examination, isn't it? You know, you can kind of make a diagnosis off. Can you make a diagnosis off a smell? Well, there's the whiff test. The whiff test. 
Uh, <laughs> for BV. For BV. I haven't, okay. done, I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> I do a lot yeah, of gynecology. I mean, I, I yeah. <laughs> well, we do ask that, don't we, on the phone, you know, what, what, you know, it's hard not to ask it in a leading question, isn't it? But, you know, what does the discharge smell of? Oh, it's probably BV. Like, am I the only one who would use that information to, you know, no, provisionally diagnose yeah, BV? Or yeah. even, you know, the classics like fruity breath if someone is in ketosis mm. or, mm. you know, the smell of something the being postulant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and I guess yeah. If you if you it must be hard for those. That, I mean, I know somebody who's lost, not had a sense of smell since childhood, and I guess um, there are certain disadvantages to to that. If you were to be a doctor or to medical training, yeah, uh, interesting. So so, and I guess that does lead on to the next bit, which is if you're seeing somebody as a, a patient who um, is presenting with with this symptom. Uh, and you've not come across it before, and it's relatively new. Uh, where do you go? What, what do we need to know as a GP at the moment to to help someone with this? Um, I imagine that people might have quite a lot of questions about about it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I remember from the anosmia article that we published in the education section that there are some kind of growing sources of evidence regarding smell training and kind of scent exposure, but I really am not sure what I would suggest in terms of helping people with parosmia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, and the biggie, I think, how long is this going to last? Like, do is there evidence? Because mm-hmm. I think with an anosmia that we're starting to see the kind of um, like longitudinal studies of follow-up from people who've had it. And it seems like for, for most people it resolves. And so it'd be really good to know yeah. if that's also true for parosmia as yeah. well. And then the other thing of not missing something else, you know, when when do you need to think of that? Yeah, of course. Very rare, um, you know, tumour or something. So um, so let's get into it. Shall, shall we hear more and answer all these questions, I hope, uh, with um, Professor Claire Hopkins, who wrote co-authored this article in the BMJ on parosmia and is uh, yeah quite the expert on, on the subject so I'll go to that interview with Claire Hopkins after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org.
So my name is Claire Hopkins. I'm a professor of rhinology at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London. That is, I specialise really in all things to do with the nose and sinuses. So parosmia is a distorted sense of smell and it's a very odd experience for anyone that suffers from it that typically comes on two or three months after COVID infection. So it really takes people by surprise as they think everything's come back to normal. And the best way to describe it, um, there's a quote from Macbeth that says, fair is foul and foul is fair. And that's really what parosmia does. It takes often very unpleasant smells, bodily odours, urine faeces, and makes them undetectable or sometimes quite sweetly smelling. Whereas it takes all of the things that we normally enjoy, food, drink, wine, body lotions, and makes them really quite unpleasant or rancid. Food can make people feel really nauseous. They can't even bear to be around um, food being eaten or prepared. It makes it very difficult to socialise. So people withdraw. Also partly because it's very hard for other people to understand what they're going through. And I guess in terms of, again, recognising this as a, a, a symptom following COVID, I can see that maybe is more difficult because with anosmia, it's like an immediate thing. Whereas this, is it slightly more... Um, you know, that you don't have that same connection with the initial infection? Has, has it been harder to identify and, and gather evidence on this? Very much so, because it's delayed. So, as I said, for many people, they think that everything has gone back to normal and it comes on some months later. So, certainly in the early months, it was very difficult for people to make that connection. And I had colleagues and friends reaching out to say, look, something very strange has just happened to me. You know, where do you think this has come from? Parosmia has been recognised as a fairly common consequence of post-viral loss long before COVID, but just the frequency of olfactory dysfunction was so uncommon then. But we're seeing very similar rates, about 50% of people that have initial loss of sense of smell go on to develop parosmia. And some patients even have parosmia when they haven't even noticed their first loss of smell. So then it really comes as an unexpected bolt from the blue for them. Do we know anything about the, the mechanism? Is this the same mechanism you might have seen with other viruses or is there something about COVID which is? We think the mechanism is the same but it's just much more common. We're still not entirely sure as to what causes parosmia but there are two common theories at the moment. Firstly there are very common triggers for parosmia. There's a group of foods, onion, garlic, coffee, burnt or roasted meats which share a number of common molecules. And these molecules have a very low odour threshold. That is, they can be detected in very, very small amounts. So we think in some cases, it's simply a threshold related issue. All of our other odours are undetectable because we don't have enough nerve endings receptors to pick them up. But these very, very strong odours show through without any of the more pleasant notes around them to camouflage them. So you just get that unpleasant hit without anything else. There's also another theory that as nerves regenerate, there's some cross-wiring and that fits with the timeline that we see this delayed onset. And so as olfactory nerves replace and, and repair themselves, they don't make the right connections in the nose and then centrally in the brain so that the signal that comes through is, is discordant. And really that's the best way to describe it, to imagine the olfactory system works with a number of receptors that work in a pattern. So we have a relatively small number of receptors, maybe two or three hundred, but we can detect many tens of thousands of different odours because they work in combination. So if any one of those receptors is slightly out, the pattern that will come through will be very distorted and difficult for the brain to interpret. 
and should we should we talk a bit about the the clinical tips I suppose for listeners you know GPs who are seeing these patients and it's that balance between um, you know not missing something which isn't uh, post-covid parosmia uh, what, what tips would you have for an in- initial assessment and maybe what, what not to miss well while testing has been widely available hopefully most patients will have at least have had a diagnosis of COVID, it will become much more difficult now as that changes. And understanding that the typical timing of onset can be some months after that presentation will help the GP to link new onset of parosmia to a previous COVID infection. There's also another condition called phantosmia. Now, parosmia is when you get a distorted smell in response to a clear odour trigger, whereas phantosmia is when you smell something with no triggers at all. And that's slightly less common and can be a sign of more sinister pathology if it's associated with any other neurological signs. So I think anyone with any other neurology should likely be referred. But if there is isolated parosmia clearly related to a previous episode of COVID, particularly if there's been lots of smell initially, and I think we can be fairly comfortable that there isn't another condition that we need to look for. One of the biggest problems for patients is that they often feel that it's dismissed. You know, it's something that can't be seen by a GP or their family, and they often feel that the impact that it has on them isn't taken seriously. So I think the most important thing to GPs is to acknowledge that when they're with the patient and to show empathy for the amount of distress that it's likely causing. Yeah, yeah, I can I can imagine. It's like like a lot of those perceived as minor problems, actually, these are having a huge impact on, on the person's life, aren't they? Uh, and, and what can we say about how long it goes on for? So in the very small number of studies before COVID, the average duration was said to be about 12 months. Now, if you're just starting off in a parosmia journey, that sounds like a very long time. But it's really important to reassure patients that it, this is, for the vast majority of people, a self-limiting condition. What we're seeing with COVID is that the recovery rate seems to be very similar in terms of timelines. So it's typically about 12 months from the onset of parosmia so about 14 to 16 months after the first COVID infection. And when we look at the social media groups, we see really encouraging reports of patients sort of reporting to the group that everything has come back to normal, they're leaving the group. And we're starting to see that come through in the literature as well. We've just looked at patients at 12 months after onset and found that about a third of the patients' parosmia have recovered by that point. And we're now starting to look at groups 18 and 24 months. And again, still seeing really encouraging rates of recovery. Um, so should we, should we talk about the, the um, explanation? I know you've got a nice uh, explanation. I'm looking forward to hearing. How, how would I explain this to a patient who's... Because who's, that's often a really big part of it, isn't it? I just want to understand what's going on. And that, and that helps with the whole um, worry about other things as well, doesn't it? So the way I try to explain loss of sense of smell and parosmia to the patient is to get them to imagine playing a piano. And when you play a piano, you have many different notes available and you play them in patterns that makes the music sound pleasant. So if you play a piano chord, we might hear the notes all working together and that sounds very nice on the ear. Now, when you lose your sense of smell, you cut the strings and none of the notes start working. And what happens in COVID is that It's not the nerves themselves that are damaged, but all the supporting cells that allow them to work. So you have a period of no sense of smell whatsoever. Now, once the supporting cells recover, some of the nerves will have survived the initial infection. And as that happens, your sense of smell starts to return to normal. But what's interesting is that 
at this stage, it's often still what we call hyposmia, a reduced sense of smell, but you don't really notice what's missing and the brain fills in the gap. So if you imagine playing that same chord, but with fewer notes, it sounds quite nice. And it feels as if things are pretty much back to normal and everything is going well. But what happens is some of those nerves that were actually killed off by the virus then start to regenerate and that process takes two or three months. But as they make central and distal connections, they may not work properly, so they misfire. And then when you trigger that receptor, you get this parosmia smell. So that's a little bit like playing a chord with one note out of tune. And suddenly those chords sound really awful. Even though there are more notes playing, it sounds much worse than when you had those notes missing. And that's very much what happens with parosmia. Everything sound, smells really distorted and the brain can't interpret it properly. Those nerves will then start to make the right connections and hopefully in time come back to normal so that you get back to the starting point of a full range of notes, full range of odorant detection and a normal sense of smell. And I guess that's, that explains a bit why the um, vowel is fair thing happens too. I suppose if you've got a, a chord that doesn't sound right to begin with, it, there's a decent chance that that might uh, sound better <laughs> when... Is that right? Some of the, it's funny, some of the really unpleasant odours seem also to be late in recovery or maybe need a higher threshold of smell. So as I said, it's likely that there's a combination of that miswiring and threshold issues with different molecules coming through uh, more strongly than others. Thank you, That that's very good. And we've added sound effects too, that's brilliant. Um, what, um, what can we say about treatment? Because, um, well, my understanding is that that really treatment isn't, there isn't really anything effective at, at, at helping recovery as, as far as we know so far, but what can you say to the patient on that? So time is certainly the best healer and it's just giving the patient reassurance that, you know, we are very hopeful that this will improve. There are a lot of things that you can do with dietary modifications, knowing what the triggers are, avoiding them, simple things like wearing a nose clip while preparing food to stop you actually smelling your food and triggering the parosmia can help. Um, making sure that they've got support. And in some cases, that will also include support for the impact it has on mental health. So that's important not to overlook. In terms of medical treatments, at the moment, nothing has actually been trialled and tested as a treatment for parosmia. But we assume that anything that will help recover normal olfactory function will also help parosmia. And there are many trials due to reports or going through peer review looking specifically at treatments for olfactory loss after COVID at the moment. Again, there's very little concrete evidence, but it appears that the delay in recovery is related to some ongoing inflammation within the olfactory epithelium. So current trials that are going through peer review are looking at things like PRP injections, use of steroids, both orally and topically, omega-3 supplements, which have an anti-inflammatory role. And there's a very recent randomised control trial that's been published looking at a supplement called palmitol ethanolamide or PEA which is also an anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective supplement. So we're very hopeful that these will also show improvements in parosmia and hasten the recovery from that, although most of them haven't fully gone through peer review at the moment, so we have to be slightly cautious. There is a Cochrane review that is basically a live review looking at the emerging literature and updating on a very regular basis. So that would be a good resource for GPs or specialists looking for 
good evidence-based treatments. So is there anywhere that um, we should be directing patients towards to get that support? So there are two very good support groups set up for patients who have lost or distorted sense of smell, um, absent and fifth sense, and they both have a huge number of resources in slightly different formats, uh, social media groups, so patients connect with each other, a series of webinars, lots of useful information tips. Um, absent, for example, have a recipe book written for people with loss and distorted sense of smell. So I think they're really important resources for patients to be directed to and um, to get more information. So there you go. I said everything you need to know about parosmia. Uh, I think it pretty much covers everything from my point of view. What do you, any thoughts on, on Claire's uh, interview there? Yeah, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. It was really, really, really clear explanations. And mm. I also really appreciated the um, explanation of the potential mechanisms, which I found really interesting about, you know, the thresholds and the, um, you know, the, cutting the piano chords it was really really good mm. reminds me a bit of our episode do you remember the one on causality a little foray into philosophy uh where yes. the idea there was that the clinician you know the role as a, as a clinician is to be an expert on understanding mechanisms uh which i think is mostly overlooked in in modern you know usual way we think about healthcare where we're just more about well, this is the treatment or this is the diagnosis. Yeah, so uh, yeah. I think that's that's pretty. That's what I, I want to get much better in in my practice and in, in understanding mechanisms and explaining them. Yeah, that's such a good point. And yeah, and as you say, not just understanding them, but be, being able to convey them as well mm. in that kind of really um, just very engaging and clear way. Um, really interesting. Uh, I might have to invest in a piano for the consulting room. <laughs> Maybe just a little toy keyboard. To or a toy keyboard. <laughs> you can keep on your desk. <laughs> that that would work. Kids are old Fisher Price ones. Yeah, that won't work. <laughs> that was so fascinating. I can't wait to get a better sense of what the effective treatments might be. It's so great that she was able mm. to comment on the trials that are ongoing right now as well. Really interesting about the. Um, cross wiring, you know, it, it did make me wonder about the kind of, um, smell training. And even though that's not something that she's necessarily recommending for parosmia in the same way that we might think of it, think of it for patients with anosmia. Um, I know that that's something fifth sense and absent do kind of work with patients mm. on. Um, yeah, I'm really interested to see what, what comes mm. of those trials. Mm. There's also that there's a lot of I think COVID has um, brought a, about more debate about when um, or what evidence is enough. I know it's something being discussed at the BMJ quite a lot at the moment. You know, is it the um, you know meta-analysis of several high-quality randomised control trials that we need to wait for before uh, recommending treatments for for something like this, or or are there different methodologies or different things that we can rely on? to um to get us to a point where we can make some practical 
suggestions that help people because it takes a long time to to come up with that evidence and sometimes it's not very practical uh yeah is that is that apply here do you think that's well i think i think often patients will um Find, try and find those answers themselves you know we, mm. we I don't think we even kind of necessarily are in in the loop or you know it I think it just happens with the internet it can happen and probably for most patients you know certainly through COVID that's been that's been a good thing um we've been able to tap into yeah the patient community and hear what other people have been trying and perhaps try those for themselves mm. I mean of course we still need a, you know the kind of I think we still need sort of scientific process um you know particularly where we're talking about funding treatment you know treatments that require funding or have harms um but yeah i mean i think it's it's happening isn't it that people are just finding finding what works for themselves uh, anything else to pick up from I've... i mean one thing that um i know we've talked about before when we've talked about long covid and about sort of policies around covid19 to kind of mitigate transmission and now in the UK, where we're in this phase of like living with COVID and, um, you know, if, if there's many people have been vaccinated, not not many sort of kids, but many people have been vaccinated. And um, a break, if you get a breakthrough infection with a new variant, the evidence seems to be that, you know, the, the vaccines hold up against a severe, a severe infection. But then there there are still all these other effects of like having an infection and recovering from an infection that okay aren't like being hospitalized or or dying um but are have a sort of meaningful impact on on people's lives and i think um you know we're we're coming off a big um omicron ba2 uh wave here where lots of people have had covid it, it certainly feels that way um, i've had it and um i hadn't quite appreciated what claire was saying about the gap in um developing prosmia after you've recovered from the infection and so you know i just thought oh we're probably going to see lots of people with this or or not but probably lots of people will be experiencing this in the coming weeks and months which um yeah, it's just interesting that a, a lot of the policies that are in place often don't take into account the impact from the kind of, um, you know, the the uh, prolonged mm. symptoms of uh, after recovering from the initial infection. I had a similar thought as well that, you know, and I think we've seen this at so many different points in the pandemic, like the first one when no testing was available and people just came with these constellation of symptoms and we kind of had to be like, well, your symptoms are, you know, could be anything, but most likely, and, and there was a lot of kind of assuming going on. And then we've moved to rapid tests as opposed to PCRs, which, and then if people have symptoms afterwards, we kind of have to say, well was that negative test a false negative and yeah. could you actually be dealing with a long COVID type symptomatology and, and now to be moving to this. And I totally picked up on that as well. If this isn't occurring until months after an infection, and if somebody never had, you know, a positive PCR test or never got tested full stop, then a lot of it is going to be like kind of guesswork and, and, building plans off assumptions yeah 
And to your point, Tom, about sort of understanding, you know, that desire to seek an understanding of what's happening um, and why it's happening. I mean, that just makes that whole process much harder. And definitely a lot of the initial um, the patients who had initially got long COVID, they talk about that feeling, don't they? Of never being quite sure um, that that was what mm. was going on. And also, mm. you know, being a bit sort of gaslit mm-hmm. um, sometimes by um, other people they spoke to. So... Yeah, it does make it that much harder, I think. Yeah. So it seems that this is something that, uh, yeah, for GPs, we're likely to be seeing for, for some months to come then and, and probably beyond that. Um, if you if you want to read more about this, as I say, there is a, a very detailed and, and lovely practice pointer article on the BMJ uh, website, uh, co-authored by, by Claire there, and uh, I definitely recommend uh, having a read through that. My thanks to, to Claire and Emily for um, talking to us for this episode. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you have, please uh, rate us on wherever you get your podcasts from, leave a review or get in touch. Our email address is practice at bmj.com. Uh, that's all for this week Um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks time Uh, thanks Jenny see you next time thanks Tom see you next time and have joint thanks see you next time yeah we'll see you in a couple of weeks bye for now